what are the parallels between Putinist Russia and the Syria of Bashar al-Assad? Why is the cult of violence widespread in both countries? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Targeting hospitals, humanitarian corridors and civilian infrastructure, how have Russian tactics in Syria and Ukraine been similar? What are the parallels between the Arab Spring and Ukrainian Maidans, and why is Ukraine important for the Middle East today? My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm chief editor of Ukraine World, and my guest is Jean-Pierre Filhu, a professor at Sciences Po in Paris, specialist in the Middle East, and author of the books Apocalypse in Islam and Arab Revolution 10 Lessons from the Democratic Uprising. We held our conversation in Kyiv, where Professor Filiu came to teach at Kyiv Mahila Academy, Ukraine's oldest university. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Jean-Pierre Filiu, thanks so much for joining this podcast. Well, thank you so much for welcoming me. It's really a privilege and honor, and I might say also pleasure of being with you uh, now. <laughs> so we are in Kiev. You came here to teach at Kiev Mahila Academy. You're a professor at Sciences Po, and uh, you're famous for your research into the Middle East, into countries like Syria, for example. And I would like to talk about this because there is a lot of parallels between the war which Russia is waging against Ukraine and uh, the fact how it uh, actually helped uh, Syrian regime, regime of Assad to oppress the, the opposition, to oppress the civil society. And one of the lectures you make in uh, Kiev Mahil Academy is called uh, uh, Vladimir Assad and um, and um, uh, Bashar Putin. Bashar, Putin. Bashar Putin, yes. Can you, can, you, yes. can you explain why you make this parallel? So first, it's really a very important experience for me, of course, as a uh, European citizen, but as a, a French academic, to be here in Kiev at the Mohila Academy to teach uh, this uh, topic. So I tailored this course, especially for Ukrainian students, to try and uh, share some of my Middle Eastern expertise with them while they are suffering this tragedy. Uh, so, parallel, yes, certainly. And the first uh, uh, shocking parallel is what I called, a little bit ironically, uh, Vladimir Assad and Bashar Putin, because very often, uh, Putin is considered as a quote-unquote a European leader or somebody from, from the North who would behave according to codes that are um, shared with other uh, Western uh, or European leaders. And uh, in fact, he's uh, uh, an oriental despot, uh, the, the way it was traditionally uh, described. And I insist on the fact that between him and uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, there are many uh, common features. Uh, the first uh, uh, obvious one is that both inherited absolute uh, power, uh, one from Yeltsin and the other one from his father. So the fact that they in inherited, uh, in fact, uh, drives them to being even more ruthless because they consider that this power 
is their property, that they own the country, the national resources, and even the, uh, their fellow countrymen. And uh, both of them come from the underworld of intelligence uh, uh, service, and uh, they have uh, this uh, parallel reality, uh, alternative reality vision of the world. They don't believe there is something called the people. They only believe in conspiracy, which is why they treat any uh, threat, any protest, as a, a challenge to be destroyed and crushed. They don't know how to negotiate. They don't know how to uh, have any decent dialogue with the other. They, they just know how to uh, liquidate and eliminate. And the third common feature is the fact that both are running and ruling mafia systems. Uh, and that very often we project on them uh, strategic ideas, uh, uh, big conception of the world, while in fact they are just handling uh, some kind of a syndicate of organized crime, so the famous oligarchs in Russia, in, uh, in, uh, and in, in Syria, it's uh, various gangsters that are uh, surrounding uh, um, Bashar al-Assad, and they, they are struggling for survival, and they know that uh, in their underworld, uh, you have to kill before being killed. And war is not an anomaly. War is at the core of that power structure, because war is generating war economy, mafia profits, and all these criminal activities that they are thriving on. Can we, we, we look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine in a way as a Putin's attempt to undo the results of the Cold War? Like he's perceiving the Cold War as the West's attack, the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, as the West's attack on, on Soviet Union, and therefore he tries to reestablish it. Can we look at his expansion to the to to the Middle East, to Syria, for example, as uh, as an attempt to undo also the results of the Cold War when Soviet Union were in during the Cold War in more friendly relations with uh, with these Ba'ath parties in Syria and Iraq, and and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it it kind of uh, moved away a little bit, and now it tries to return there. Certainly, but again, I will come from the Middle East with my own angle, perspective, and uh, uh, dimension. Uh, it is in the Middle East that uh, George Herbert Bush established the New World Order, the post-Soviet World Order, after the War for Liberation of Kuwait in uh, 1991, uh, only a few months before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it is in the Middle East that uh, America uh, led the foundation of its uh, world hegemony during three decades. So uh, it is also in the Middle East that America started to disengage and started to lose this upper hand in world affairs. They didn't realize when Obama is not enforcing his own red lines in 2013 after the gas bombing of uh, Damascus suburbs by Bashar al-Assad, he's thinking only about the Middle East. He doesn't 
uh, understands that this is a world issue. Putin und understands. Putin understands that this backing of, of Obama uh, is a golden opportunity for him. And as a historian, for me, it's very clear. The countdown to the uh, uh, occupation and annexation of Crimea uh, starts a few months before in Damascus. Uh, when Obama backs down, Putin understands and Putin says the opportunity not only in the Middle East, but also in Europe and against Ukraine. That's very interesting. So you're basically <clears throat> saying that the reasons, the causes for Crimea annexation actually lie in different regions, in, in Middle East, in global affairs. And this weakness of Obama, weakness to imply, apply his warnings about the red line of, uh, after chemical attack, were kind of an opening for Putin. Putin understood that he can do anything because, because Obama and America will not react. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And if you remember, uh, French President François Hollande was ready to, to, to go against Bashar al-Assad and was absolutely let down by Barack Obama uh, 24 hours before uh, the scheduled operation. And it is also uh, French President François Hollande was far more uh, um, proactive in his uh, sanction uh, policy uh, uh, in Europe, but also compared to, to, to America after the annexation of Crimea. So uh, Obama thought, like many uh, world leaders, unfortunately, that you have Europe on one side and you have the Middle East on the other side, and you can play European way, uh, with European cause, European dynamics, while in the Middle East, well, it's a ruthless world with uh, bloody dictators and terrible civil war. Putin is thriving on this very uh, Middle East in order to pursue his own goals in Europe. Well, at least that's my contribution to the debate. Huh? Uh, and uh, I am a Middle Eastern expert and not a European affairs expert, but for me, The chronology, as a historian, is striking. It starts in Damascus and it goes on in Crimea and, of course, in Donbass with the undeclared war now going on for uh, uh, nine years. Let, let us talk about other parallels because we hear in Ukraine that there are many parallels of what Russia is doing here compared to what Assad regime and Russia itself was doing in Syria, bombing hospitals, bombing civilian infrastructure, uh, killing people on the humanitarian corridors, the green corridors, uh, creating this, this sentiment of fear when, when you just uh, shell civilians who are trying to escape. Uh, is, can we talk about these parallels, about the parallels of cruelty on the ground? Yes, cruelty and uh, what I call terror techniques that have been tested and developed uh, in Syria and are now implemented against uh, Ukraine. At the very beginning of the full-scale invasion, Syrian doctors called their Ukrainian counterparts saying, put sandbags in the hospitals to protect them, try and bury Uh, your uh, operation uh, and uh, room and emergency services. Don't believe that a red cross on the roof of the hospital will protect it. On the contrary, it will make it a target because uh, Russia has proven it in Aleppo in 2016 that they are targeting uh, this uh, civilian infrastructure in order to 
terrorize the population and to turn the population against the defenders, against the resistance. Uh, the so-called humanitarian corridors, it's an Orwellian um, um, horrible word invented by Russian propaganda because they are not humanitarian and they are not corridors, they are traps for the civilian population. It was used in Aleppo in 2016, it was used against the civilian population in Mariupol, among other cities, in 2022. And here around Kyiv, we, we see lots of cases in Bucha, Hostomel, we see lots of dozens of shelled cars of civilians who try to escape. Yeah. And, and it's systematic. Uh, uh, the, the propaganda of, of the Kremlin try to, to pretend it's collateral damages, it's irregular forces. But for example, the so-called irregular forces, Wagner, uh, the Kadyrovtsi, uh, they, 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 in fact, they tested their operational coordination with the Russian army in Syria. Uh, they were uh, on the ground, they were uh, committing many crimes on the ground, and the Russian army could say, oh, it's not us. And uh, uh, I just remind that the Russian army supported unconditionally Bashar al-Assad from day one in suppressing the revolution in 2011 and intervened directly in 2015. But thanks to Wagner, they could say, oh, we have no losses in, uh, in uh, Syria because uh, most of the losses were uh, suffered by uh, the Wagner group and the Wagner group was uh, retaliating against the civilian population. So uh, all this uh, has been already going on in uh, such uh, an horrendous way in Syria. The Wagner group has developed itself in Syria and in Africa, in Mali, in Central African Republic. Do you think that the Western powers paid, for example, France with regard to Mali, paid sufficient attention to this? Because actually it, it absolutely kind of a... This was a message that we were trying to convey since 2014, that we are facing a not only the problem of, you know, little guerrilla groups, terrorist groups, but this is terrorism organized by this state, by this big state machine. Do you think it was taken seriously at the time in the West? No, not enough, obviously. Eh? The Fulkel invasion was a wake-up call, a tragic wake-up call to all Western democracies, not only in Europe, but also in America. Uh, the hybrid war that Russia has been waging against Ukraine for now, Uh, full uh, decade um, has been also uh, tried, tested, developed against the Western democracies. Uh, it's obvious when we're talking about fake news, about uh, uh, the way they try to, 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 to create uh, um, an alternative reality. I, I can just uh, tell you an anecdote. It's 2013. I am um, invited by the BBC to comment on uh, uh, the gas bombings in Damascus. And uh, there is a Labour MP from uh, UK, but there is also uh, a Duma representative. And after just 30 seconds of, of the broadcast, she started to shout at me. We were talking about Syria. And she said, one day when you will have terrorists with their uh, uh, big knives in the streets of Paris opening the wombs of pregnant uh, women, then you will understand that President Putin was right. 
I'm talking about 2013. So this all all out propaganda war against democracies, you are weak, you are tolerating terrorism, you are a fertile ground for extremism, and only Russia understood the threat, and only Russia can save you from this uh, threat. This, this is not new, and it was, I insist, tested, developed in Syria before it was tragically implemented in Ukraine. Do you think that Russian propaganda tries to make this image of Asia, Asian countries, Asian nations, as, as people who want terrorism, who want killings, and like portraying them as bad barbarians, well, while the Russians and Assad are portraying themselves as good barbarians, who will save the West from these bad barbarians, terrorists and extremists. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, it is uh, the biggest lie, <laughs> you know, the, the, the saying. But they keep, they keep hammering it. They don't change the, their message. And uh, because fear, fear is the most common emotion. So they play on that. They play on fear, fear, fear. And they play on and fear so much so that people will literally lose their mind. Uh, from the very beginning of the so-called Arab Spring, I wrote a book uh, um, called The Arab Revolution. I was at that time visiting professor at Columbia because I knew, I knew not only from my mind, but really from my instinct that very soon the dictators and the Russian will do their utmost to confuse the world opinion so that nobody would understand anymore that the liberation process was uh, undergoing and they would pretend that it was war against terror. So what is puzzling is that everybody understood uh, the importance, the magnitude and uh, the, the danger of the global war on terror by George W. Bush. But when uh, Vladimir Putin launched his own global war on terror, uh, saying, in fact, anybody who protests against my friends, the dictators, are terrorists, and I will uh, really treat them uh, accordingly, which means I will liquidate them, I will exterminate them. People didn't understand, and he only made a speech at the General Assembly of the United Nations in September 2015, just a few days after intervening in, in Syria. And his speech was very clear, was crystal clear, you know. There is only one legitimacy, it's the legitimacy of the state. The people have no legitimacy, and you know better than me, than the whole uh, indirect and now direct war by Russia against Ukraine started because the people of Ukraine, after your Maidan, took their fate into their own hands. It's the right of self-determination from the people, by the people, for the people. And this, Putin not only never accepted it, but he decided to fight it with all his might. Let me come back to this question of cruelty. <clears throat> there are, I think, two uh, interpretations why this cult of cruelty is present in such dictators as Putin and Assad. One is that there is certain culture behind them uh, which, which I would call kind of a sadomasochistic culture when I, when I try to understand Putin's minds, is that the mind that in the world uh, the, your biggest pleasure is actually suffering of the other. So your goal is to make others suffer more than you suffer. 
another and and this is kind of a more like emotional attachment to violence as, as your climate of being another interpretation which is it's just very rational because as we know from the classics of french political philosophy like montesquieu tyrannies are founded on fear and the more you can make your citizens scared of you the more you you are able to rule and how you can scare them by extreme violence and and you will not even cross the red line because any any new uh, any new challenge will demand you from more and more violence how do you interpret uh, i think the two interpretations are valid you from the uh, macro and uh, micro point of view Um, of course, such uh, regimes are based on fear. They, they are fear is uh, consubstantial to, to 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 the way they terrorize their own population. Because uh, uh, before terrorizing others, well, they, they, they have to inflict terror on, on their own. Huh? But um, my probably my personal contribution to the interpretation would be the fact that. Uh, as I described Vladimir Assad and Bashar Putin, they live in a Darwinian world where the most cruel, only the most cruel can survive. That's the way they, they came to the top, and that's the way they remain at the top. And every day, staying at the top and staying alive, for them, is a victory. We believe they have big strategies, they have big designs, they have big visions. No, they are survivors. They are survivors, and in order to survive, they are ready to inflict the utmost cruelty on the other. That's very interesting because I, <clears throat> this is also my argument that actually Putin is one, 100 years behind the European world because in the European world in late 19th century, like uh, this social Darwinism was so much widespread and basically before being present in Hitler and Nazism and fascism, it was present in the European imperialism in, in, in very, very, very prominent way. And then, of course, this after the Second World War, especially this cult of violence went down. So uh, we don't know whether it will happen in Russia, Syria or some, some other countries. Tell me about the Arab Spring. Can we look at the events of the Arab Spring And for example, Ukrainian revolutions of 2004 and 2013-14, Georgian revolution, Moldovan revolutions, as the kind of a the 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 elements of the same process of the same chain uh, chain when peoples, nations try to societies try to assert the subjectivity agency with regard to tyrannical regime, or they are completely different and we cannot really compare the Eastern European revolutions and, uh, and uh, our Arab revolutions. No, no, I, I am fully, uh, deeply convinced that we are talking about basically the same kind of popular processes of uh, defending and struggling for collective self-determination against uh, autocracy or tyranny. Uh, my first experience in Kiev and Ukraine was uh, after Euromaidan, and I was really impressed to see on Maidan the way you pay tribute to uh, uh, your martyrs, to the people who fell defending uh, your freedom. Uh, while at the same time, on another Maidan, Maidan means square in Arabic, and it comes to Ukrainians who uh, Turkey, 
and on Maidan Tahrir, on Tahrir Square, which is supposed to be Liberation Square, the way your Maidan is Independent Square. Well, on Tahrir Square in Cairo, that has been the center of a peaceful revolution against the Mubarak dictatorship, everything had been erased. There was no trace of any uh, graffiti on the wall. The whole memory of the revolution had been uh, liquidated, had been liquidated. And in fact, the now dictator and very good friend of Putin, um, uh, former Marshal uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi, says that his coup is the only revolution. He called his coup in 2014, uh, so shortly uh, um, uh, after all these events in Syria, uh, Ukraine and Crimea, is um, sh- um, uh, supposed election by 97% uh, uh, percent, uh, um, he call it the revolution in order to erase the memory of the real revolution, the popular revolution that occurred uh, before. Yeah? And uh, really for me, the, 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 it's not only parallel, it's the same dynamics. And um, unfortunately, I noticed that people who didn't uh, take into consideration those popular dynamics in the Arab world, and there were many, were also many not to take into consideration the same popular dynamics in Ukraine. And when it comes to Vladimir Assad and Bashar Putin, for them it's very clear. A color revolution are conspiracies, people are foreign agents, protesters are people to be uh, uh, liquidated in order to save the regime, and it is the same rationale, the same logic that apply in both uh, region and uh, instances. That's amazing because we see how Russian regime tries to take the genuine processes, for example, the war on terror. Well, we can be critical of the concept, of course. Maybe this is a wrong example, but uh, Arabic Spring, they and and use this concept to to actually uh, designate counter-revolution that they have mm-hmm. been making in Ukraine because they all this process starting in 2014 they called Russian Spring, Ruska Vesna, mm-hmm. which was actually not a, a, a spring, which is not popular uprising, but a genuinely constructed plot with the help of the Russian military to stop uh, the, the Ukrainian revolution. Uh, so it's it's indeed very very interesting how this Aurelian logic works. How mm-hmm. they take one concept and just turn it into the opposite, into into the opposite. Uh, in in Syria, the Aurelian logic went so far that, of course, of course, nobody speaks about a war. Uh, it's like in Ukraine uh, with the so-called military special operation. But imagine that in 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 Syria, the areas that are bombed bombed by the Russian Air Force are called deconflicting zone. And that the, 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 when uh, here or there uh, uh, defenders are surrendering, it's called reconciliation agreement. Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, the idea is that they're fighting for peace. There was this huge concert for peace 
in uh, uh, the ruins of Palmyra in the Syrian desert with, with uh, um, Putin uh, appearing uh, uh, virtually uh, in uh, 2016 concert for peace while the whole country was at war and while the Russian Air Force was bombing any uh, um, freedom fighter uh, area while letting um, America, France and the UK uh, fighting ISIS and fighting the real bad guys, the real jihadis. They were fighting the, the revolutionaries. They, 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 they cared very little about the jihadis themselves, about the real terrorists. There is another parallel in this you know, external viewpoint on these revolutions is that when I was following the news reports about uh, Arabic Spring, there were so many confusion whether the protesters are really want democracy or they're religious fanatics and there was the same with regard to ukraine that you know protesters were marked as you know neo far-right people neo-fascists neo-nazis mm. do you see a parallel here or rather indeed in the in some of the cases these messages were correct no it's always the same propaganda machine trying really to vilify uh, uh, protesters. Protesters are, are no angels. Protesters are diverse. They represent the diversity of the society, politically, religiously, uh, and so on and so forth. So you, you, you can have uh, a, any walk of life uh, among popular protests. Uh, but the, the, the machine tries to really, uh, this propaganda machine, tries to vilify them, try to reduce them to only one category, fanatics, uh, terrorists, quote-unquote Nazis, and uh, they use the word, and uh, in fact, let's face it, uh, the, the Russian plan uh, at the beginning of the full-scale invasion was uh, to get rid of the legitimate leadership of your country in order to have the fragmentation that uh, uh, now Syria is suffering from. And then to say, oh, you have this kind of uh, faction, this kind of territory. And then, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, slowly, slowly trying to absorb it, to absorb it once they, they had uh, uh, gotten rid of the top. Uh, your, your, your great historical chance was not only that your president uh, stood uh, against the invasion and he stood in the very heart of uh, resistant Kiev, but that you stood behind him. So that means that you had this coherence, this uh, national unity uh, that uh, um, uh, uh, Russia could not break. And if I, it's not about Middle East, but if I may, may make a comparison with uh, the, the, the German Nazi occupation of France of 1940, we had a discrepancy between legacy and uh, between legality, sorry, and legitimacy, uh, which is something that now all the students are studying. We had uh, the legality was with Pétain. There was no doubt about that. <laughs> but the legitimacy was with the goal. But it took us four years to reconcile the uh, legality and the legitimacy. Yeah? While, lucky for you, uh, your uh, legality and your legitimacy were embodied in the same person, uh, the, the, the President Zelensky. And this was a tremendous plus to resist the ongoing uh, full-scale invasion. 
I think this is a drama of Belarus, <clears throat> because in Belarus you have a situation of this conflict between legality and legitimacy. Leg legitimate uh, go government is the government of Tsikhanovsky, who is uh, in exile, and then the so-called legal... Yes, and so-called <laughs> legal government mm -hmm. uh, is the government of uh, dictator Lukashenko, who is actually legal only according to his terms. No, yes, yeah. and I may, again, a personal anecdote. On the very evening of the full-scale invasion in Paris, you know, we have a Place de la République, it's our Maidan, Republic Square. And spontaneously, uh, uh, crowds of people gathered with Ukrainian flags And uh, I recall that uh, the legitimate president of Belarus wa was present that night to, to give a full, uh, full support to, to, to the Ukrainian resistance. Let me come back to the Arabic Spring. So can you describe briefly the, the, the legacy of it, the heritage, what is happening now, starting from Syria? Because in many aspects in the global media, we, we, we no longer talk about this. Yes, because it's complicated and because it's dangerous. Uh, you have to, to understand that social research, uh, media, uh, independent activity uh, is uh, very dangerous in this part of the world. And it's not um, just an anomaly. It's a systematic. Uh, uh, those regimes, uh, generally supported by Putin's Russia, are uh, waging a very systematic war against uh, freedom of expression. And, and so, of course, you have confusion. But the reality is that you have a generational change. That's uh, also obvious. And I've been, I'm now 61, so I have now a little personal experience of various cycles in this part of the world. So now the general picture is very depressing, honestly. The, the, the last... Uh, Uh, the the uh, wave of uh, popular protest in Lebanon, in Iraq, in uh, Algeria and in Sudan starting in 2019 was uh, uh, fought and uh, repressed uh, everywhere. Huh? Even in Sudan when they had managed to topple uh, a very good friend of Russia, uh, General Bashir, Uh, accused of genocide uh, and who was in power for 30 years. Uh, so, uh, but the same generation has learned very heavily, very tragically, uh, the lessons of resistance. Uh, they know they made uh, mistakes, they learn from their own mistakes, but uh, they are still appalled at the fact that the, the outside world is not understanding the legitimacy of their fight, uh, is uh, giving priority to stability over uh, freedom and uh, liberty. Uh, and uh, that's fortunately a big chance for Ukraine that uh, nobody in his right mind dared to say that stability, the Russian way, would have been preferable and everybody understood that liberty was the absolute prerequisite for any decent stability in the near future. Is there any country in which you would say that Arabic Spring has won? Well, the, the last spark of the Arab Spring was Tunisia, but even in Tunisia, uh, the, there was a constitution uh, to end uh, the constitutional process. But 
even in Tunisia, where the situation now is very depressing, you have a very strong and vibrant civil society, very strong union movement, uh, human rights defenders. Uh, you know that they collectively uh, got the uh, Peace Nobel Prize in 2015. So that means that even in this situation, even in this, this depressing context, there are deep inside all those societies forces of change because it's a new generation with very strong demands for popular participation, for personal uh, development, for personal uh, achievements. And they know that the state of affairs is working against them. So, in fact, the repression, and you know that very well in, in Ukraine from uh, your past history, repression is infusing political consciousness <laughs> to uh, all uh, uh, the societies and especially among the young people. Uh, coming back to Ukraine, do you think that Ukrainian struggle can really have the global influence not only on Europe, but on, on, on this belt, let us call it the Mediterranean belt, uh, the, the Maghrebian countries, the, the Middle East? So imagine that uh, Russia fails. Imagine that Russia fails in this war, is defeated, has, is cutting its imperial ambitions, drives away from the Middle East or from uh, from Africa, will that be a, you know, a, a stimulus for these democratic movements to come back on, on stage? Oh, it will be an extraordinary stimulus, which is why Putin is working with both hands, one against Ukraine and one uh, supporting the dictators in the Middle East. And I'm convinced, again, as a historian, that Ukraine is the cause of the moment. And uh, there is a Ukrainian moment in uh, not only in Europe, but in, in international relations, thanks to the resistance of the Ukrainian people. Now accountability, transparency, justice are demanded and they are accepted, are legitimate and crucial demands on the international arena by an increasing number of actors. This is a game changer. This happens thanks to Ukraine and its resistance. And this, of course, will have an impact on uh, Syria in particular when it comes to uh, justice, but uh, uh, the Middle East and uh, the Mediterranean area in general. I wonder if we can, can compare the moment in Europe, which is 1848, mm -hmm. which is also called Spring, Spring of the Peoples. And this moment, the particular feature of this moment, it, is that it, it was actually perceived by many actors in France, in, in, uh, in the Central Europe, uh, everywhere, like a beginning of something, but it was actually a delayed beginning, but it was, it was an end of the wave of revolutions. And then there was a you know, neo-authoritarian backlash. We have the, the, uh, the Second Empire in France. We have uh, you know, authoritarian tendencies in, uh, in, uh, in Prussia, in Austria, etc. And then this kind of was kind of a delayed bomb because all these democratic movements, they kind of sparkled after the probably half of the century, after the, the First World War. Do you think that we are living in this moment when, okay, Arabic revolutions have lost, maybe, 
the Georgian revolution has lost right now. It's it's now also authoritarian regime. Ukraine Belarusian revolution has lost. Ukraine struggles. Moldova is is more or less okay, but uh, we are really approaching maybe with this generation change a big transformation on this belt, which is probably will go to Russia as well. Well. Again, as a historian, I insist uh, my, my field of expertise and speciality is the Middle East. When I'm talking about Europe, um, I'm more expressing myself like a concerned citizen, a committed citizen. Any historical process, any revolutionary process takes a lot of time. The whole illusion of instant revolution, of Facebook revolution, of click activism has proven very wrong. You know, a, a revolution has to be waged on the ground systematically uh, in a sustained way by people who are brave enough to go through the whole process until it fulfills its objective. Uh, again, in Ukraine, you proved it to the world with Euromaidan. It didn't happen in, in one day, and it took some, many lives before uh, finally ousting uh, Yanukovych. And uh, it, it will be the same. What is sure is that now this Ukrainian moment, if I may call it like, like this, is showing to the rest of the world that the struggle for democracy not only is, uh, is a rational way, but is also a positive way that you can achieve success. I have absolutely no doubt about the Ukrainian victory, absolutely no doubt, because you have you know, the, the, the time, the energy, the space and history on your side. And by the way, also Western democracies uh, in Europe and in America. So um, uh, you, you will ultimately uh, win. And that, of course, will be a, a terrible uh, loss, uh, drawback uh, for Russia and what Putin embodies right now, which is exactly what we have been describing since the beginning of this podcast. It's not only about Russia. It's the epitome of authoritarianism, of despotism in the most cruel way. And it will prove to all the so-called realists that are in fact so short-sighted that the real realism is to stand with ethical issues, is to stand with freedom the way Ukraine is defending so bravely its own freedom. The real realism is idealism, in a way. Well, um, in the good sense of the word. In the good sense of the world, because as you know, the so-called realists that are in fact only um, cynical, Cynics. Uh, in fact, values, uh, ethics, are a crucial uh, generator of energy. I, I look at you, the generator of ID. Uh, and uh, uh, standing for democracy, standing for values. So that means that uh, enforcing, living up to your ethical standards is a strategic weapon against the forces uh, that are today led by uh, uh, Vladimir Assad and Bashar Putin. When you talk about this generational change in the Middle East, in Syria, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Morocco, how would you describe these young people? What do they want? What values do they have? 
Well, it's like in the rest of the world. It is what political scientists call the, the invention of the individual. Uh, the way that instead of being part of a group that is speaking on your behalf, well, there, there, there is a self-consciousness of personal identity. Uh, but um, what uh, strikes me is that very often when people think about young people, they think about... Um, Uh, people w without family or responsibility. The militants, the activists in the Arab world are young parents. Huh? They have already uh, uh, one or two children. And in fact, if they are, if they are involved into politics, it's because they don't want their children to suffer what they suffered. And uh, this is why this generational change uh, is here to stay. It's not something that will fade away, especially with Ukraine uh, standing uh, so forcefully for its legitimate rights. One country we still didn't talk about, and maybe we are approaching the end of our conversation, is very important for Ukraine right now, is Iran. And um, um, I recently talked to my friend here in Ukraine, an expert on, in Middle East, Ihor Simovolos, who is director of Center for Middle East Studies, very interesting person. And I asked him, what is more probable, regime change in Iran or regime change in Russia? And he said, in Iran it is much more probable because the society is much more vibrant. And we see that on, on, on these protests and the role of women. Do you agree with this estimation? Well, first one has to understand, I was talking about Vladimir Assad and Bashar Putin, that there is a very deep and functional Russian-Iranian alliance. And the first world leader who targeted and called this alliance an alliance was President Zelensky last fall, after the wave of Iranian drones uh, against uh, your country and your cities. So this alliance has nothing to do with ideology, uh, and, but uh, it's uh, uh, this obsession with absolute power. So uh, the problem is, what is the definition of regime change in Iran? If tomorrow the Revolutionary Guards make a coup against the Ayatollahs and they keep the absolute power and all the corrupt networks and organized crime into their hands and they say, oh, uh, veil is not compulsory anymore, will we call it regime change? We'll say it's a victory for... Freedom, I doubt it. It will be just uh, another dictatorship with new, in new clothes. So uh, at this very moment, um, the same drones, the same Iranian drones that have been used against Ukraine have been also used to strike uh, Iranian exile in neighboring Iraq. Huh? So the parallel is so striking. Yes, so you have this popular protest uh, in Iran under this wonderful slogan of uh, woman, life, uh, freedom. Huh? And the same weapons that have been used to crush it have been used against Ukraine. So I see a very strong bound uh, between the people, the same way you have this very strong bound, this alliance between the two regimes. My last question, when you, when you look at the 21st century, Uh, how, of course, I, I don't ask you for forecasts, but how, how would you call this century one of the 
for for us Ukraine Ukrainians, it's of course very important to call it a Ukrainian century because many things can go around Ukraine. <clears throat> but in a way, we can also call it Asian century, but not in the way how we used to talk about Asia recently about economic terms, China, India, Japan, it's all of course very important, but in the political terms, that democratization of of the Middle East countries, the new wave probably of of revolutions. Do you expect that? And and the same of course about Maghrebian countries and, and some other African countries. Do you expect that? Well, historians are very good at forecasting the past, but uh, as you may now uh, have uh, understood clearly, you see where my art lies. And it lies, of course, with this uh, kind of uh, perspective. What is sure, and um, I'm, I'm ready to bet uh, anything on that, is that uh, the same way uh, this century was opened by 9-11, and it was a defining moment for the first two decades of this century, the now uh, generation will be shaped and deeply shaped by Ukraine resistance uh, against uh, Russian invasion and hopefully the sooner the better Ukrainian victory. Jean-Pierre Filiou, thanks so much for this conversation. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermonk, I'm chief editor of Ukraine World. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to support us at patreon.com. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front line at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.